Hi everyone, Brian Farrell here, and welcome to We Are Many, a show about people working for change and how that work changes them in the process. As always, this podcast is brought to you by wagingnonviolence.org. Let's get started. As longtime supporters of the fossil fuel industry and political candidates that deny global warming, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was perhaps the last group anyone would have expected to reverse its stance on climate change legislation. But that's exactly what it did, or so it appeared at least, during a press conference held at the National Press Club in 2009. Here's Chamber spokesperson Hingo Sembra disavowing the group's stance on the notoriously false climate solution known as clean coal. And that clean coal is is a, a technology that has not only not been proven, it basically doesn't exist. And it's it's just obvious we have to put uh, our money, it's a sane business decision, we have to put our money where, uh, where the proof is. Okay, this is, uh, I'm Eric Wolschlegel, I'm with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Um, this is not an official U.S. Chamber of Commerce event, um, so I don't know what pretenses you're here. I know some of you uh, in the press world, but this is a fraudulent press activity and a stunt. Who are you so, really, if you have any questions, you're welcome to direct them to me um, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Who are you really, sir? And do you have a business card? Are you with the U.S. Chamber? I, I do. We can discuss afterwards. Okay. Can but I see your business card? Can I see yours? Are you here representing the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? Yes, I am. Okay, well, I work there, and you do not look familiar to me at all. Could I see your business card? Stunt? Could I see your business Is this card? A stunt? Are you interrupting a Yes, I am. And, uh, this guy does not represent the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Can we finish the okay? No. This is not an official Chamber of Commerce. This is not... Uh, I'm on deadline. Yeah, got it. So they're misrepresenting the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Sir, if you so if anyone has any questions and wants to talk to the real Chamber of Commerce, they can direct, you can direct your questions to me. So are you an activist? What, what's your you, position? If you would like to have a, a press conference, you can have your own press conference, what is your, sir. What is your position? But you can't come in here and barge in and interrupt our press what, conference. What is your position? I don't know what... Uh, sorry? What is your position at the Chamber of Commerce? I just spoke my position. We've got working... What is your, what is your title and your official title at the U.S. Chamber I'm the assistant to Mr. Donahue. Okay. okay. This guy is a fraud. He's lying. Um, this is, you know, a stunt that I've never seen before. Yes, in fact, it was a hoax. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the nation's biggest pro-business lobby group, had no intention of removing its support for the fossil fuel industry. But that didn't stop it from becoming news. Reuters, Fox Business, CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, they all reported on the stunt. Some were fooled by it. Others were amused. In the end, though, the incident brought more attention to the Chamber's stance on climate change than just about any protest or environmental report ever had. But that wasn't the end of the story. The Chamber, apparently not yet realizing its image problem, decided to sue for copyright infringement. The defendant in that case, which would later be dropped, was the activist duo known as the Yes Men. 
Using various names, but principally Andy Bicklebaum and Mike Bonanno, the S-Men have been shaming corporate wrongdoers with elaborate hoaxes for over 15 years and making movies about it. Their latest film, The Yes-Men Are Revolting, is going to be available digitally on June 9th before opening in New York City on June 12th. Recently, I had a chance to speak with Andy Bicklebaum, the man you just heard posing as a U.S. chamber representative with the rather unlikely name of Hingo Sembra. We talked about his new film and how his mischievous youth from a high school prank gone awry to getting fired from a computer programming job led, ultimately and unwittingly, to a career of hilarious but highly effective activism. Before getting into that, though, Andy would have to endure my own attempt at some humor. I'm going to begin. I wrote a really lame joke to start this off. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm kind of embarrassed. <laughs> All right, I'll just start. Yeah. All right, I'm here with uh, NSA cultural liaison Jude Finisterra. Hey. How you doing? Wait a minute. What? Is this a prank? Oh, I'm sorry. That was a terrible way to start this off. I just felt like this pressure to like come in with a joke. It's so hard to think of jokes. I'm a terrible joke writer. Really? Yeah. But you're like kind of a natural. At- well, I'm good at like on the spot, like doing something mm-hmm. funny when the cameras are on and everything. But yeah. like actually thinking through, like, how do you tell a joke? Yeah. God. I don't know. I've never it is, known how that's... Yeah, I think the more thought you put into it, the worse it yeah. comes out. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Often sort of like this one, how I put a lot of thought into it and, <laughs> and it didn't really work oh, at yeah. all. That's really familiar. A lot of the actions that I've been involved in, the more thought I put into them, the worse they were. Not always, but yeah, there is a correlation. Well, I'll start it off correct then. Okay. Um, I am here with Andy Bicklebaum of the Yes Men. But that also is just one of your names yeah. that you go by. And I wanted to start off actually asking how you come up with all the different names that you do use in the actions. Like, I think they are amazingly hilarious yet believable because they're just so out there. Jude Finisterra or Renee Oswin and Hingo Sembrow. Like, is it just like off the cuff or? What are you thinking when you come up with those? Yeah, some of them are off the cuff. Some of them just come out of the blue. Some of them, I mean, one, one thing we do is uh, search for Catholic saint names because there's a lot of them and they're really odd. There's a lot of really odd ones. Like there's patron saints of the impossible, like St. Jude, which is why the guy oh. who announced the you know Bhopal yeah. action by Dow was named Jude Finisterra. Finisterra meant the end of the earth. Wow. Um, there's, yeah, some of them are just obvious, like Shepherd Wolf <laughs> for the Halliburton guy. Do you have a, a favorite one that you've used over the years? Probably Gren with Hulitberry. I love that one. Yeah. I wrote that one down too, and I actually was going to say it, but realized I didn't know how to say it. Yeah, so. Gren with Hulitberry. It, What's I, that? I still What's have the zero idea how any of it makes any sense. There is no name Gren with, although it sounded perfect. Like, that's obviously a Welsh name. Mm-hmm. But there is no such thing, or Hulitberry. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Well, yeah. so the Yes Men have a new movie mm-hmm. coming out in June, right? Yeah. And it's called The Yes Men Are Revolting. Yep. And it has, I just watched it and loved it. It has everything I love about you guys in it, the creativity and the humor <laughs> and the mischief and all that stuff. But mm. the thing that stood out to me as really new this time was how 
you guys actually kind of got into the personal side of what mm. you do. Obviously, that was yeah. an intentional decision, maybe in the in the editing process. But did you think about that going into it? Yeah, the and, whole idea from the going into it. I mean, the idea for this film came during Occupy, basically, and we thought it would be really important to highlight just how powerful this movement really was. And we really wanted to talk about what was happening to us as people during Occupy and how that fits into a bigger picture of activism. And what was happening to us during Occupy was we were getting this huge breath of fresh air. We, were, we felt like, oh my God, so much is possible. You know, just a few people show up and camp out in this spot and boom, it turns into this crazy thing that, that changes the way we talk about inequality in this country, or actually it makes us able to talk about inequality in the media. Massive change, and we've seen it keep going in different forms and transform itself and infuse other movements with energy. So at the time, it was pretty obvious that was the thing to talk about. And especially we wanted to talk about how it had given us new hope and really uh, made us see the power of activism overall. And it also showed us the power of our own activism because, you know, often over the years after doing these things, we've kind of like lost hope or thought that, you know, this action didn't do anything. You know, we'll, we'll do things and they, they finish and then nothing really seems to change. But at Occupy, a lot of people came up to us and said, you know, I got my start in activism by watching your first movie or your second movie. And that made us think about just how important it is to keep doing things even if you don't know that how they're succeeding or if they're succeeding because it gets into the culture and people it, it changes things in one way or another and it's going to that energy will take a new shape and a new form in this case occupy it was a little part of that you know mysteriously i mean not a big part obviously but that was a tremendous feeling to have and we wanted to communicate that feeling of being part of a movement to a larger number of people. And so we had to tell a personal story because that is such a personal story. And you know, so we had to tell the, the story of feeling despair and feeling hopeless and feeling like nothing is really working. And then realizing, oh, it has been working. We just didn't see how. It's actually been in the air in one way or another and, and that's, that's worth it. Well, I was hoping to get a little bit more into that personal side, your own story, which you really do tell in the movie. But without giving too much of those things away, I mm. wanted to maybe ask you some more about that personal side of things. So mm -hmm. would, you, would you mind talking a little bit about your upbringing? Because in the movie, we do get to, to visit your hometown, and that mm -hmm. was kind of cool to see. Yeah, um, I think probably, you know, as the movie mentions, and I actually I think it's true, my first feelings of authority being something not to trust came really early for me. My dad is a Holocaust survivor, and his dad perished at Auschwitz, and he had to hide on farms growing up. And, you know, I grew up with that story and knew it. And I, I think I just, you know, always knew that power was really not something you ever want to trust in any form. And uh, my dad also taught me to be suspicious of commercials on TV early on. And, you know, I, I've for some reason never wanted. I've never enjoyed shopping. I've never liked being in malls. I think power takes a lot of forms, and I think I'm all, it, it always makes me a little uncomfortable. And I think it may come from there, 
But I think at a certain point, I just decided that humor, and more specifically, mischievous humor, would be my way of, you know, going after power and making it ridiculous. Did, did you do stuff like that as a kid? Were you mischievous? I was. I didn't really have a focus. I just knew that, you know, I wanted to fight back against something. <laughs> It wasn't always clear what, and looking <laughs> back, it really isn't clear what. Like, I went around in high school telling all my friends, this was uh, during the uh, hostage crisis, the Iran hostage crisis, which kind of dates me, but during that, you know, uh, Khomeini, uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini was public enemy number one, and I went around my high school telling all my friends that I was his grandson. <laughs> That's my granddad. Yep. <laughs> and I, Why would you do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking, but I really did it very single-mindedly, and um, for so long that that people eventually believed me. Were you trying to like cultivate fear? Or <laughs> no, no, just... I, it wasn't malicious. It was just weird. I mean, yeah. m- well, I, I find it weird. I don't quite understand it. I think, you know, maybe it was just like I wanted to. Uh, I, I mean. I'm not sure I had this kind of sophistication, but maybe I wanted to poke holes in this idiotic yeah. narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, that that is the enemy? Really? That guy? Okay, he's my grandfather. What about that? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what do you want to do with that? Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I mean, I really don't remember yeah. what my ra- reasoning was, but I don't know if I was being that provocative or, or not. You know how like when you're kids and you make up these ridiculous stories, especially before the internet, when no one could check, you could just say like, oh yeah, my cousin is Macaulay Culkin. And I remember a kid who, who would claim that and we believed it, Yeah. but then it clearly wasn't true later on as we grew up and realized that. Yet that's like a totally like a personal way of self-aggrandizing. But you were thinking like even beyond like poking holes in, in our perceptions of good and evil and all that. I mean, that's pretty... Well, remember, I just said <laughs> I may have been doing that. I have no idea what I was doing by doing that. I just imagine that would be one thing you could do with that kind of a story. Um, but yeah, it's true with like Google now. It, it's a lot harder to to make stories up that everybody will believe. I mean, people in my high school really did believe that after a while. I mean, not at first, but then after a while, people started coming up to me. And, you know, I wasn't a crazy kid. I was actually kind of calm. So they had no reason to, th- you know, yeah. it, it wasn't it's like... It's so out there that it's believable. Mm, yeah. Again, like a lot of the S-Men stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, maybe. But yeah, I was otherwise a, a pretty well-behaved kid. And so people eventually kind of believed it and came up to me and asked. But... The, the ultimate joke was on me. I was part of the speech and debate club, and um, I think none of them believed it even for a split second. It was mainly like strangers who believed it, but none of my friends believed it uh-huh. at all. But I kept telling them, you know, yeah, he's my grandfather. And one day on a, a sleepover, uh, we went, you know, in a tournament somewhere and slept over, I think, you know, in another city in a hotel. And we got kind of drunk and I fell asleep. And then in the morning, everybody just looked at me really strangely and like, oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe what you did. And somebody said that, like, I can't believe what you did last night. Oh my God. I was like, what? What did I do? I fell asleep. I got a little drunk. I fell asleep. So, no, that's not all you did. 
And then somebody else said, yeah, you, you actually, uh, you jumped up and, and down on the bed naked singing, I enjoy being a girl. And I didn't even know the tune to that, but I believed them. Especially when other people said it, and then other people said it, and then people that hadn't been there said it, and it was like everybody was telling me that I had done this, and so I ended up believing it until finally one day somebody told me it was a joke. (laughs) So they had totally turned the tables on me. It was great. Oh, man. I really, but I I took it as, you know, it was kind of lovely that they did that. (laughs) (laughs) I still think it was a very kind of affectionate thing to do. It's probably good to think of it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was telling all of them that my grandfather was Khomeini, so I think they had a right to play a joke back on me. So what were some of the things you did before the Yes Men that kind of put you on that path? So I was a a fiction writer. I uh, wrote a couple books of short stories, but then I also happened to be really good at math, and I had to make a living And so I taught myself computer programming. I started out doing word processing jobs and realized I could actually program these computers. And then I found it kind of interesting to do so. So I started teaching myself to do that. And um, this was like in the 90s? This was in the 90s, yeah, 94, probably three. And I ended up teaching myself how to program rudimentary in in a pretty basic way. But then, uh, you know, I learned more and more, and I I wrote a resume (laughs) that had a significant amount of experience in this program that I was learning, and I sent it off to a a couple of companies. I can't remember how I sent it off, but I did. And I got a job as a senior programmer in this database language that I was kind of new, and I went. I quit my word processing job and went off and, and did that job and did fine. And then um, I got tired of that after three months, made another resume for something else I wanted to learn better, got that job, went off and, and kept forging resumes until eventually I actually was pretty good at programming. And um, I got a job at Maxis, which became then Electronic Arts. And I, I was hired as one of the first two programmers on The Sims video game before it was called The Sims. It was called Project X. Wow. And So, so I was, the first Sims, like it hadn't f- come out or the anything. The pre-Sims, wow. yeah. No, this was like proto-Sims before it was even really a, a game at all. It was just some technology to make little bodies that could walk around. And then I was moved after about six months off of that project to a full production video game called Simcopter that was being released. And it was, uh, you'd fly a helicopter around. And since I had been on this other game, and I was the one who knew this technology for making people run around. I was in charge of the little people who ran around in this game, uh, this helicopter game. But I didn't enjoy it very much. It wasn't challenging like working on The Sims. And there was some personal stuff going on in my life, like my boyfriend left me. And you know, I just was kind of frustrated with this job after a while and didn't enjoy the intense, you know, must produce some corporate product for God knows what reason. So I I changed all the little people in the game to randomly turn into boys in swimsuits who would then madly kiss each other (laughs) all over the screen, as well as kiss the helicopter pilot that you could walk around. And it would happen randomly. Like, you know, I thought every... Every actually on my ex boyfriend's birthday, <laughs> I wanted it to happen. But um, 
unfortunately, it, it, well, fortunately, maybe, it happened a lot more than that. And the day after this game was shipped to store shelves, like 80,000 copies were shipped to store shelves, my boss was playing the game with his nine-year-old daughter, and this happened. And the whole screen was covered with these boys in swimsuits kissing each other. That is amazing. Yeah. And he let me go. And I, uh, I mean, it took them a week to fire me, but they did. And I was telling this to a reporter, Steve Silberman from, from Wired magazine, actually. I was telling him about this whole funny story. And he told me, you know, that's just really funny. I'm going to write an article about this. And he, he wrote one about how, you know, I'd put these boy bimbos into the game and gotten fired for it. And it just exploded. It became this really big story. It was in the AP. It was on TV. It was everywhere. And this was a huge surprise to me. I didn't know that something this silly could become a big media story. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the attention. And it kind of gave me a lot of, um, it gave me a really intense focus. And I, I discovered during this week that this was happening about PR. I discovered PR because I really hadn't had an intention in doing this. Right. I was just kind of like, ah, eh, I'll put these boys in and they'll kiss. And um, I was telling, as it was exploding, I was, I was talking to this person from, a, I can't remember which organization, a, a gay organization. He said, you know, you have to actually spin this. You have to talk about gay issues in this. You know, you have to make this about something. <laughs> this is an opportunity you know, it, it, you think it's just a, a joke, but this is a real opportunity. Yeah. And so I started talking about, yeah, how there isn't much gay content. There's no gay content in video games. And this was a statement about that. So I made it seem like it was a piece of activism, which was a real lesson in PR. You know, anything can be an opportunity. All you have to do is bridge from what exists into what you want to talk about. Does that say something, do you think, about the media then? That if you can give them a coherent reason or some some purpose that they're gonna be more attracted to it? Did you Yeah. yeah did you find also. like that they were willing they were very receptive to, to yeah. telling this story about it being an, an activist like action? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. They they absolutely I mean, it's a funny story in itself, but it's funnier if there's a purpose behind it. Mm -hmm. I think people do like feeling that there's a story, that you're yeah. telling something, you're doing something and there's a purpose and they're going to learn something right. rather than just, here's a bit of fluff. Yeah, it goes from like, oh, the disgruntled employee who, you know, like... Right. Yeah. To How like, interesting is that? Yeah. Yeah. This guy who really like wanted to expose a major flaw in like the video game industry yeah. and like our discussions around gay culture and everything. Right. Like, That's it. That's it. There's a lot more to chew on, chew on there. And... You know, you got to figure a lot of people go into journalism, even in the corporate media, because they care about stuff and they want to chew on stuff and talk about stuff. So, yeah, if you give people a story and a purpose behind the story, they're going to be a lot more enthusiastic because it gives them something, it gives them a chance to do what they really have trained to do mm -hmm. and why they're in the profession in the first place. So, how does this put you on the path to meeting Mike then? Well, yeah, a after I did that, the, um, you know, the media came out about it and media only lasts about a week, generally, media attention, not even, I mean, there was basically nothing after two or three days, 
Um, there was an AP story, really giant, reprinted everywhere. I was on television. Then there were maybe a few little blips and then nothing. And I was just like, oh, that's sad. Um, <laughs> I really enjoyed mm. that. I want this to keep going. I want this to keep going. What can I do? And I thought, well, maybe I should, uh, you know, make a video about it. A friend of mine had the idea I should make a video about it. And, but that didn't seem right. So... I'm a fiction writer originally, and so I made a fiction. I made, I wrote a, a manifesto for an organization that I pretended existed since the early 90s, maybe. This was 96, so I pretended like it had been around for a number of years and that it had sponsored many acts of corporate sabotage already, including this one. This, this, that they oh, had paid so me $5,000 to put these kissing boys into the video game in order to highlight the lack of gay content in video games. So I pretended like I had received this money and that many, many people had also received money from this organization. But this, I was the first one who was allowed to actually speak publicly about this organization. So I wrote this whole document from this organization saying, yeah, you can talk about this for the first time. And I sent it to the AP reporter who had covered it, covered the Simcopter thing in the first place. And she said, wow, this is amazing. And if it's true, it's going to be a gigantic story. But if it's false, I'm going to be fired. Oh. <laughs> so I told her it was false. And she promised not to tell anybody. But I also told a lot of other people about it. And um, one, one friend... Um, had a, had this other friend that he had gone to school with who had who he knew had done some very similar kind of activism a couple of years before and he thought he would love it so he sent him this this document and um that guy got in touch with me and said oh yeah you know this organization actually sponsored me and my action a couple of years ago. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course, it hadn't existed. But his action was the uh, Barbie G.I. Joe uh, voice box switcheroo. It's called the uh, Barbie Liberation Organization. Oh, wow. And he bought, you know, voice. Uh, he bought talking Barbie dolls and talking G.I. Joe dolls and switched their voice boxes, put them back on store shelves, and managed to get an immense amount of media attention for that. I just like want to point a, out, I, I'm pretending I don't know about yeah, this because yeah. I watched the movie. But right, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, this is the movie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so he, he remembered that. Oh yes, this organization, that fictitious, shadowy organization, had funded them as well. And so together we kind of promoted this organization, and it actually kind of became real, not in the sense of it having sponsored many things or sponsoring new things at all. There was this whole pretense on the website that there was lots of money going through it and sponsoring all kinds of things. No money actually ever went through. But we did promote a lot of things. And, you know, there were a number of actions, a number of things that people were doing that we wrote press releases for and pretended like we were giving lots of money to. And they understood, yeah, you have to pretend like you're giving money to it because then in a capitalist society, people take you seriously. <laughs> so that was what we did for a number of years, um, from 96 to 99, three years, we did that. It was called Artmark, RTMark. You can still visit the website, weirdly. Really? At, yeah, RTMark.com. Yeah, I, I sort of see now why you were saying what you did in the movie, which is that when you 
you met Mike, it was sort of this kismet kind of thing. Like you found your other half in a sense, because he plugged right into your whole, basically. Yeah. Like that's kind of amazing that, he you know. He got it. Yeah. He got it instantly. And yeah, we kind of got each other instantly. Like, oh, you're somebody who also likes to lie to people just for the fun of it. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll construct elaborate ruses to make people believe something just because. But also for a purpose like that, you know. This was the first time I had told a lie. The, the Simcopter thing was the first time I had told a lie or done something for a pur- like mischievous for a purpose. Right. And I didn't even know that's what I was doing until afterwards. But that's what we ended up being about. We ended up being about like doing quirky, catchy media actions for a purpose to mm-hmm. highlight important issues. And how valuable was this partnership you had you you know the movie really gets into that but what exactly do you think it it enabled from you like creatively and 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 just as an activist what what is so important about working with with someone else on projects and things like that well a lot of it's about courage just feeling like you can do things that seem crazy to you as an individual you know you if two people are telling each other that something's reasonable to do can do anything you know you can convince yourself that something is a reasonable thing to do Um, you can do that alone I guess but it's a lot easier if you have somebody else who also believes it you know the French have the expression folie à deux I'm not sure what it actually refers to but it could you know it's like craziness uh, a double craziness it's like you know you 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 buttress each other's attitudes. So like in our case, you know, we we made this whole scheme, this like fake organization that that I had written the manifesto to and started and we just took it to the nth degree and made this video and got the word out there in all kinds of different ways. And then um when it came time to actually go represent people at conferences, represent corporations at conferences, I think it was only because we were telling each other this was a good idea that we did You're like it. egging each other yeah. on. Yeah, we were yeah. egging each other on to do this, and that's how we managed to do it. Like, it isn't necessarily a reasonable thing to do. You know, yeah. anything could happen or seemed... At, at first, it seemed like anything could happen. Now we know nothing ever happens if you do this. But when we started, we thought, well, maybe it will be arrested and maybe terrible things will happen. But we decided to do it anyways just because... It's interesting, definitely interesting to us. We definitely want to. And, you know, just knowing like that for me, knowing that he would be there if I ended up in jail and him knowing that I would be there if he if he ended up in jail. We had like these escape routes drawn where we would end up in different places so that, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. It was kind of over the top if we look back at it now. Like there really is no danger doing these things. But to but it feels out, so um, wrong, right? It feels like, wrong. Yeah. yeah. And what are, I've always wondered, like, what you're thinking in that <laughs> moment. Are you able to enjoy it in the moment? For instance, like, what are you thinking when you're standing in front of a group of Homeland Security people wearing like this ridiculous wig, yeah. and you've managed to get them into like this. Uh, circle dance and they're just going for it and it's like this moment of surrealness what are you thinking well there are these flashes of like oh my god this is working this is amazing this is hilarious and it's like super it feels like this big rush 
but then there's also just perpetual discomfort. It's like really, you know, nerve wracking because it could all fall through. Somebody could recognize me or, you know, somebody could see that it's a hoax or whatever. And then all the work would be just shot. So there's this perpetual nervousness, but you know, at the time when one of these things is happening, I just like, I, I focus on just like playing it as much as I can in the character of the, you know, yeah. whoever it is. Like in that case, I was just from the Department of Energy. I was just excited to tell this revolution story, the way we were going to just convert the whole U.S. to renewable energy and do it fast and do it by giving people the ownership of the means of production, yeah. you know, and cite these facilities on Native American lands as partial reparation for genocide and just do all these wonderful things. It was just like filling myself with the excitement of doing that. You know, as, as an audience, when we're watching this, obviously the joke is on these corporations, these people that represent corporations, so much evil in the world, and it's easy to to see them, therefore, as the bad guys. And it's fun to see the bad guys kind of like get duped into something. But yeah. do you think you've come away with something deeper about humanity? Like, I, I know it's like a uh -huh. broad question, but something struck me in what Mike said in the movie where he was, he was saying you kind of realize that most people, even if they're working for evil, yeah. you know, aren't actually like mega maniacally insane. You right. Know? Yeah. And I think, I like I think, that. I think people of. are basically good. I mean, that's the difference between the left and the right. I think, you know, left wing people believe that people are basically good. And that if you give people the opportunity to do good, they're going to do it. And, but that involves like not encouraging our negative tendencies and not privileging our negative tendencies, like not thinking that greed is the only power we've got, like Milton Friedman, you know, mm -hmm. greed is the only motive that society can quality, possibly yeah. have. Yeah. It's not, it's not even that he thought it was a good quality. He just huh. thought there is no alternative. Like that's the only way we can relate to each other is through greed. It's an insanely pessimistic view of human nature, I think. Yeah. It's like, no, we collaborate. Animals collaborate. Cockroaches collaborate. Like, everything on Earth collaborates, too, you know? And there's even altruism among... A lot of altruism among, among animals. This is like... There's no reason to say that we have only these really negative, competitive things in our nature. So, yeah, and that was an example. Like, as long as people are getting what they need which in that case was contracts, they're really happy if it's like coming mm -hmm. from a good place, if it's for a good purpose and nice things are going to happen because of it. They don't care where their money's coming. Well, they do care where their money's coming from. They're a lot happier if it comes from a good place. But, you know, we've, we've got this society where the most ruthless people, the people who have the most ruthless attitude and the most intense desire to get rich have managed to get the rules written because they've had that urge. And so they've gotten more and more power. And um, somehow the rest of us, they've written the rules that, to favor themselves and to enable even more accumulation of capital. And somehow the rest of us have stood by while that happens mm -hmm. a lot of the time. But not only, you know, there's a breaking point and then people don't stand for it anymore. And that's where we are now. Has anyone who's ever been the butt of a prank ever come to you later with 
their eyes a bit more open. People have written to us and said, yeah. I was at your thing and I really liked what you did. Huh. Um, that's happened a few times. Yeah. But I don't know if you know, they were already on our side. I mean, there's yeah. nothing lo- necessarily, you know, about our, these audiences that's all negative yeah. or anything like as that event shows. Well, there's something brilliantly meta about that action because it's hilarious, yet at the same time, at least 75% of the people in that room are believing it. And like you said, you're appealing to their good nature. And it's almost like bizarrely like heartwarming because it's more than just a prank, which I guess is what you guys get called all the time. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is. I hate the word prank. I think it's a terrible, terrible, stupid word. It's like what you play on your big brother, you know, eh, I'm going to play this thing. Because it means it's, it's at someone's expense. It means it's good natured is my problem with it. Mm. It means it's a joke. And what we do is, you know, we try to make funny things, but they're not good natured. We actually hate our targets and we we want to stop them, you know, or maybe, I mean, on some weird, you know, level, we we love them too. But, you know, we we really basically don't like Exxon or Halliburton. We're not playing pranks on them. We're, 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 We're very serious about wanting to stop them from being able to dictate life for all of us. Not that our things are going to do that, but they're part of a movement that is going to do it. And so, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I call them actions because they're just like any other direct action. Like if you go out and you do a sit-in in the Exxon offices, you're making a statement that you don't want this to keep going. And we're doing a weird kind of sit-in where we're, you know, making a joke at their expense and getting media attention that, that reflects negatively on them. Um, but it's still an action, you know, even if it's small, even if it's almost insignificant in the big picture of activism, it's still an action. Also, whether people in these audiences have written to us and had their heads changed, you know, it may have happened. And, you know, yeah, in that case, we did give them this opportunity maybe to express their good feelings. But that, and that is great. I'm really, I'm really happy that that, is a feature of it, but it's not really the main point at all. The point is to show audiences, especially like activist audiences in that case, that there is nobody standing against us if we just take action, if we just really, we can take over. And, you know, the people that we think of as the pillars of power are not really committed to it. They just want to make a buck. And if the system works kind of in a way to enable them to get contracts to build things and, you know, build good things, they're going to do it. So, you know, we can change the system entirely. If we find a way to do that, the people who go to Homeland Security conferences are not going to stand against that. So it's kind of... um you know, I think we think we have a lot, there's a lot more enemies out there than there are. I think the main enemy is just lassitude and thinking that we don't have to get up and do something. We all have to get up and do something. So, I mean, this is a a big question and you're in the middle of promoting this film and maybe you're not even thinking about what's coming next, but what is next for the Yes Ben? Are you going to think about more movies this felt like because you you turned so much to the personal side it made me wonder is there going to be more from you guys um we're actually doing a thing um for the release of the film that i can't really tell you about or it's around the release of the film and i can't really tell you much about it except it's in california can people get involved in this or i don't know yeah yeah they can 
Okay. Um, they should write to us. All right. Yeah. So yeah. keep an eye out for that. Keep an eye out for that. <laughs> Don't reveal it if you figure out what it is. <laughs> That's coming. I mean, one thing we're going to be doing over the next few months is releasing bit by bit uh, stuff from the last 20 years that we've accumulated and not turned into movies. Wow. And that's about 80% of what we've done. Most of it ends up on the cutting room floor, but there's some real little gems in there that we're, we're crafting into a thing. Like we're putting together right now a, a thing about um, the whole Stratfor episode where we visit Julian Assange a couple of times and he tells us that we're under surveillance by this giant corporate spy agency called Stratfor, which has been hired by Dow Chemical to spy on us because of the Bhopal announcement we made on the BBC. And that was just so funny and so interesting and um, such a, a great couple visits. And he said such amazing things that we're really excited to to release that because for one thing it shows a side of Julian that's totally not known by people. Mm. He's a really funny, soulful, you know, sincere guy. He presents a different image to the media, so we're excited to show that. Well, I think it says a lot about the movie that that didn't even make it in. So yeah. <laughs> that's that should be a sign that people need to see it and I would highly encourage it. I enjoyed it and thank you for for talking with me here. Yeah, thank and you. sharing all these stories. Oh, and th th yeah, thank you very much. And by the way, if you at the end of the movie, there's a little uh, mention of our new platform, the Action Switchboard. The the whole idea of the movie is to inspire people to be part of something, of course. And this time, unlike the last two movies, this time we're providing a platform that people can go to to actually find direct actions or propose their own direct actions to to get collaborators for and feedback on and, and help crafting. So if you go to actionswitchboard.net, you can uh, propose an action or join one that's already ongoing. And through the Action Switchboard, we're also launching this uh, series of uh, trainings. Over eight weeks, it'll take you through developing an idea and putting together a team and carrying it out. So it's a an opportunity for activists or organizations who want to do this kind of thing to get their feet wet in a structured way. Amazing. We just, we need more of it. And you guys are the best at, at helping facilitate it, I think. So thank you. You guys are the best at writing about it. Oh yeah. Go on. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. All right, that was my interview with Andy Bicklebaum of The Yes Men. I'm Brian Farrell, and you've been listening to We Are Many, which is brought to you by Waging Nonviolence, a publication my guest just described as being the best at writing about activism. So check us out. And if you want to support our work, including this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the site. You can learn more at wagingnonviolence.org support. That's it for today's show. I'd like to thank, once again, Andy Bicklebaum of The Yes Men for joining me. If you want to find out more about his new film and how to get involved in some of the things he mentioned, go to theyesmenarerevolting.com. I also want to give special thanks to my audio engineer, Dave Tattashore, and musician John Vanderslice, whose music you're hearing right now. 
And if you're looking for ways to follow us, We Are Many is available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and SoundCloud. So subscribe away and maybe leave us some feedback. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon.